Victor Hugo wrote a novel, Les Mis, Les Miserables. And uh, some of you have probably seen the musical or you've seen the play. How many have seen Les Mis? You've, the musical, the play, maybe you've read the book. But let me just, for those of you that may be unacquainted with this amazing classical story, it's really a story of God's amazing grace. That's what I love about it. It's got such a great gospel theme moving right on through it. And it's really, it centers on the story of a life of man who, first of all, is under sin's power. You know, and the main character, Valjean, robs for a, robs for a loaf of bread. He's hungry and he's apprehended and the, and the crime does not fit the punishment. In other words, he's sentenced to hard labor for 10 years because he robbed the loaf of bread. Can you imagine the kind of bitterness is inside of this person? I mean, it was just building up as he was in prison. Finally, he's released from prison. He's on parole and he's still hungry. You know, he's, and he decides to, you know, rob uh, a priest. But fortunately for him, this priest is quite benevolent. And so he's putting all kinds of stuff in a sack and he gets away. <clears throat> and pretty soon, you know, the police catch him. He's caught with the goods. I mean, this is bad. He didn't get anything. He just got the goods and he's caught with it. And they bring him back to the priest. And the priest, and they say, you know, you know, the Catholic Church father, listen, we brought this guy. He's robbed all these, taken all these things from your home. And he said, no, 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 you've misunderstood. I gave those things to him. And he says, not only that, he left sooner than I wanted him to. I have a few other things to give him. And he runs around the house and he puts some more things in the bag. And, and, and this guy's like, you know, what in the world is going on? I mean, you know, he's thinking, you know, I just did 10 years for a loaf of bread. I'm really in big time trouble now. And he walks out of this thing with all of this money and he's like stunned, he's shocked. He's now experienced grace in his life. And he's so moved by this grace that it literally brings about a transformation of character in his life. And he goes out from that point and he begins to be benevolent and kind and forgiving and gracious. And eventually, you know, he, he, he gets past his criminal past and he becomes the mayor of a small town. And he's always looking at opportunities to help people. And there was a young woman, she was a prostitute and she was dying and she had a little girl. And he took the little girl and began to raise that girl as if it was his own daughter. Now that's a beautiful beginning of the story. He's, no kidding, he's the protagonist. That means he's the good guy, right? And then we have to have an antagonist to make a good story, right? That's only works with an antagonist, somebody that's not noted for being as nice. And the antagonist is a, a man that's the police inspector. His name is Javert. And he believes that the mayor is a criminal. He was a thief. He'll always be a thief. And so he wants to discredit the mayor and he goes after him. He's trying to figure out how he can do it. And so he's... He keeps after this guy and eventually he does discredit him and he's forced to flee and he pursues him for the next 15 years and finally he's apprehended. And so the passion of, uh, let's see here, let's try this. Okay. Oh, good. So the passion of Javert, the police inspector, is a picture of the law continually pursuing us. This is a metaphor. 
And even so, we find that God's law pursues us, but it's unlike the motivation of Javert, who's, who, who wants to, you know, punish. No, the law wants to bring us to an understanding that that which is deeply concealed within us, which is namely our sin, because we don't see it. When, you know, when I'm in a state of sin, I don't see that I have a problem. And as I look at our culture today, that's exactly where we're at. We're trying to make everything okay. Our culture wants freedom to sin, right? We want to have a culture that says everything is healthy and okay to do, and everybody's normal. But unfortunately, we know that that's not quite the truth because the people who have the freedom to sin eventually no longer have freedom. They're in bondage to the sin. They become captured by it. They become addicted to it. It becomes a power so great, they're no longer free. And so the very thing that they espouse freedom, now they've lost it. Actually, the Bible does talk about freedom, but it's not a freedom to sin. It's a freedom from sin. And how great is that? It changes everything about our lives. We become the person God initially designed us to become. We become more like him. We become more like the real person God intended for us to become. It's so powerful. But sin works at concealing itself in our lives, holding us captive. And for those who don't know Christ, sin's captivity finally leads to this ultimate separation from God. While for those who do know Christ, the law reveals that the sin that's trying to keep us from fleeing to Christ and find the freedom from the greatest enemy of, of all, which is trusting in ourselves. You know, isn't that amazing? You know, we, we're, we're, we think we're the answer. And the reality is we have to eventually discover we're not the answer. As a matter of fact, I've been studying in the book of Proverbs. It feels like I'm studying day and night right now. And there's two verses that are really etched in my mind. And I love the first one I've always loved, and that's Proverbs 3, 5. Some of you have it memorized. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your steps. But verse 7 is powerful. It says, do not be wise in your own eyes. In other words, don't think, don't think that you know more than what you really know. There's so much we don't know. There's so much more to learn, and there's so much lear- more to learn about ourselves. As a matter of fact, we don't even understand sometimes why we do the things we do. You know, we, we can't totally figure it out, but as we're going to see in, in the book of Romans chapter 7, we're going to look at this amazing chapter And we're going to answer the the question, probably the most difficult chapter in the book of Romans. It's caused theologians disputing with each other. And the question they're raising is simply this. Is this a person's condition before they become a believer? Or is this the condition of a person that's wrestling with sin as an issue in their lives as a believer? And we're going to come back to that question because that's the question I want to focus in on today. Because I'm so concerned about our culture today. That so many people want freedom, but it's a freedom, as I said, to sin. You know, in the United States, I just uh, read this the other day, that there is a tremendous crisis in their nation, just like there is in ours. And this is what it is. People under 50 years old, the leading cause of death to people under 50 years old is drug overdose. And that 175 Americans are dying every single day from drug overdoses. And that the reality is that in Canada and even in Alberta, we're having the same problem. 
And, you know, these drugs, you know, many, many of them are prescription drugs. They're painkillers, but they're being abused. And so many people are struggling and they get highly addicted. And they're not free anymore. They're bound by this and it erodes their ability to think straight and it affects their character and it affects how they want to live life. It robs them of living. So, though sin exists, we find in chapter 6, you know, sin has been mastered by the, the redemptive work of Christ. And though it exists, its former power has been dealt an incredible blow. But the problem so often is, you know, we do not live in that experience. And chapter 7 will help us understand how to get there. As a matter of fact, here's what you need to know. We've been set free because of what Jesus did for us. We've been set free through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to talk about how that can be applied and utilized in our life so that we can live in freedom. How many would like to be free from maybe some besetting sin in your life? Free from, you know, the despair that it's created in your soul. Free from maybe addictions in your life. You know, free from all kinds of problems. How do we get to that place? Well, I want us to, you know, be able to say that we have the power to say yes to God and no to sin. And I think there's only one group of people that can do that, and that's the people who have experienced Christ. He's the redeemer. He's the one that sets us free to give us the power to say yes to what's right and no to what is wrong. Uh, How many realize that we're in a battle? We're in a battle, you know, it's kind of defined as three enemies. You know, the Bible talks about the world, which is the system that's against God. And then it talks about the flesh, which is a nature of sin. You know, when you become a Christian, your, your sinful nature is not taken out of you. See, that's a myth. You still have it. How many have actually recognized that there's times you sin? And there's times you're struggling with sin inside of yourself, right? You see, so we still have the sinful nature. Even though God's given us his nature, there's almost this little battle going on between our old nature and our new nature. And then we have the battle with Satan himself, the devil, okay? So we have these three spheres that we're battling. And the closer you come to God, the more you become aware of you know, you're moving into the light. The more you come into a light, the more you can see what's wrong. The more you can identify the problem. So a lot of people don't want to come to church. They don't want to come to God. They don't want to be exposed because they, they, they feel naked. They feel exposed. They don't want that experience. But it, this is what happens. The closer I get to God, the more I see the problems I have in my life. And yet the less I'm doing those things. Isn't that funny? The more I see that I'm a sinner, but the less I sin. And the more I move away from God, the less I see myself, you know, as a sinner and the more I sin. I think everything's okay. It's just the way it works. So before I was a Christian, I, didn't, I thought I was okay. I never saw myself as a bad guy. We saw myself as a good person. I think when you talk to most people, they see themselves that way unless they are deeply broken. And then they'll say, oh, no, I'm a mess. But for the most part, most people see themselves as okay. You ask the average person in, in Red Deer, Go door to door. How do you perceive yourself? Most of them, they'll say, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good gal. You know, I try to, be, I try to do the right things. Right? You'll get that. You and I just don't know really how sinful we really are. And I love what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says something very interesting. This is kind of insightful. He says, there's a silly idea that's current that good people do not know what temptation means. And this is an obvious lie, of course. 
He says, only those who try to resist temptation realize how strong it really is. As a matter of fact, a man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. Are you following the argument? He's saying the longer you resist, the more you recognize the power of evil. That's all he's saying. And he says for many people, they never resist, so they don't even know there's a problem. You know, they don't see the, the problem with, with this struggle. And that's why bad people, he says, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life. How is that? They always give in. They've never resisted. They don't know anything about resistance. You will never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try and fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full extent what temptation means. The only complete realist. That's an interesting approach to it. We don't normally think this way. We always think, well, bad people really know what badness is. But Lewis is saying, no, they really don't because they've always yielded to it. Try resisting evil and you'll find out how bad evil really is then. Then you'll see the power of it and how strong it can be. So now Bible scholars, when we're talking about this whole process, you know, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. I come to Christ. And then God wants to bring about a transformation and renew me into the image of God. Well, that's a process. And the Bible uses the term sanctification. It's a theological term. And really what it really means is I'm moving from who I was and how I live to who God has called me to become. I'm to become like him. And that's what the word holiness is all about. It's the idea of being separated for God's purpose. It means I'm, I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm living for someone greater. I have a greater purpose to life. I'm living for God. I'm set, my life is set apart for God. I'm a holy person. And every child of God is a holy person. You've been set apart for God's purposes in your life. So now Paul now is going to begin to talk about the process of how this begins to happen in our life. And he talks about this battle that we have with sin. And how it begins to intensify over time. And look, he says three things that I think are going to help us experience. I don't just understand. I want us to experience this victory over sin. And the first is the legal grounds for our spiritual freedom. You know, we need to look at the declaration. You know, Americans have a declaration of independence, right? Well, you and I have a declaration of freedom that comes as a result of being a child of God. And he's talking about you know, how we can be free from law's continuous condemnation. Because you know what the law does? The law comes along and it points out our failures. You know, if we didn't have a law, we wouldn't know it was wrong. See? (laughs) And and every time I do something wrong or I'm reading in the Bible, oh, there I go. See, there's a problem there. There's a problem there. It really kind of focuses in and tells me what I'm doing wrong. You know, you can really think you're good until you put yourself up against a diagnostic tool, you know? Then you realize, well, there's a problem here. There's a problem there. And that's what the law does. It shows us what the issues are. It identifies the problem, okay? So the law states that whenever we sin, also there's a consequence. And it keeps teaching us that. There's consequences to this. Now, Paul starts out by using an analogy of marriage in Romans chapter 7 and verse 1. Let's take a look at these, this chapter. Because I'm going to go through there and explain this very interesting chapter. It says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to men and women who know the law, that the law has authority over a person only as long as they live. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. 
But if her husband dies, she's free from the law of marriage. That makes sense, right? If you're dead, the law has no more authority over you. That's what he's saying. So the only way to get out of the law's authority is if you have to die. How many follow that point? Very simple point. The only way to get past the law is to be dead. Then the law has no authority over you. That's his argument. He says, so then if she marries another man while her husband's still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. James Dunn says, in Jewish law, the wife was indeed bound to her husband so long as he lived, since only he had the right to divorce in Deuteronomy 24. I know that doesn't sound nice, but that was the way the law was framed. And I've done a lot of reading on divorce and remarriage, and that verse is a very challenging verse. The point is simple. The law is binding only if a person is living. But if you die, then the law has no authority over you. Now here's the good news when you're a Christian. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you died. Are you following this? If any man be in Christ or woman be in Christ, they are a new creature or creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. See, you've never met me. You've never met the old Paul Valley. Patty has never met the old Paul Valley. She doesn't even know about that person. See, I was a believer when I married her. So she never met the old Paul Valley. Now my brothers and my sister met me. And they're still living. And they could say, yeah, he was like this. That's the old Paul Valley. But you see, there was a day when I came and gave my life to Christ. I died. You go, what do you mean you died? You see, when you and I give our life to Jesus Christ in the book of Romans, chapter 6, it basically says that you, even as Christ was crucified, so you and I are crucified. We're in total identity with Christ's death. And just as Christ rose from the dead, you and I rise to a new status with Almighty God. We're a new person. And you know, a lot of times what happens in our lives is we go, you know, I have a hard time relating to that pastor because I have all these problems that I had before I was a Christian. Attitudes, hang-ups, right? right? That's kind of where we're at, but we don't understand the authority that God's given to us. I'm telling you, before you couldn't change, now you can. You say, well, you mean how I, I can change? You have a new nature now inside of you. It's a divine nature. There's a new power living inside of you, Jesus Christ. There's a new spirit living with you. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. You have now been made alive in Christ. There's a new dynamic in your life. This is beautiful. You can actually say no to the old nature and yes to God's way of living. There's that power in you. I love this. You know, before you couldn't, you just kept doing it. You know, you go, I want to quit doing this, but I can't. But now there's a new power at work in your life. If any man or woman be in Christ, they're a new creation. You died. So you're not the same person. First of all, you need to understand your legal authority. F.F. Bruce says, if we apply the analogy to the believer and his relationship to the law, the woman is the believer and the law is the husband. However, because the law cannot die... Paul has the woman die in verse 4. He says, you died to the law. You're dead. Therefore, the law has no authority over you. 
That's what he's trying to say. As death breaks the bond between husband and wife, so death, the believer's death with Christ, breaks the bond which formerly yoked him to the law. And now he's free to enter in a new union. You're free to get married to a new person. Not the law. Christ. Wow. Now, if you want to stay married to the law with the do's and don'ts, all it'll do is identify all your problems. That would be like marrying to somebody, all they ever did was give you what you did wrong. They kept telling you what you were doing wrong. You go, boy, that gets old after a while. Isn't that true? Wouldn't it be nice? You're now free and you're married to Christ. And what is he doing? He's reminding you of what he's done right. And you're now free from what you did wrong. I like that arrangement. That's pretty nice. Everybody get the picture. I like that analogy. I love it. Paul moves on to the application of the truth. Verse 4, so my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. You belong to Christ now, he's saying. To him who was raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit. Here's what you need to know. And I love Galatians chapter 5 because it says the same things there. It says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and then do not let yourself be burdened again by yoke of slavery. In other words, what he's saying is, you're free, but don't go back to what brought you bondage. And in this case, it was the law, right? But I'm going to say this to us as believers. What brings bondage in our life is sin. And in chapter 6 of Romans, he says, you're free. If you're, you, you, you yield your members as instruments either to righteousness or to unrighteousness, if you yield your life and your body and the way you're going to live to God and doing the right thing, you're going to bear the, the results of that. You're going to get the consequences. Do you know if you sow good seed, it's going to produce beautiful fruit. You know, that's why I was crying yesterday. I couldn't hardly take it because I knew all the good fruit that Billy Graham had done and I was listening to all this stuff and I was weeping and it was so moving. I was going, he, he kept dying to himself and planting all these good seeds and here's all the fruit. You know, beautiful. It made me cry. You know, but if I'm sowing the seeds to fulfill my own sinful desires, it's gonna produce broken relationships, heartaches, okay? So we have to use some wisdom here. We have to say, I'm going to sow to the spirit and not to the flesh. I'm going to do the right thing because I have the power to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing that's going to lead me back into captivity. That's what he's talking about. Now notice that the law just arouses our sinful passions. Verse 5, for when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. How many know when you tell somebody don't do something, that's probably the worst thing in the world? You know, it's almost like they want to find out why, you know? It's like this hotel in Houston. They, you know, they built it on the water and they put up in the rooms, you know, don't fish from the balconies. Because what was happening is people would go out and fish and, you know, they had lead weights, you know, wait to get down to the level where the water was and they'd cast and sometimes they'd miss and come sailing right into the dining room. And they were always repairing broken windows, They just couldn't get people to stop fishing in the balcony. So finally, they got so desperate, they took all the signs down that says, do not fish. And all of a sudden, people stopped fishing. You know? It's like telling your kids, don't touch it. And they're all going, why? You know? You know, it's like, don't walk on the cement, it's wet. You know? Well, why? You know, it's just the way we are. There's something inside of our hearts. We just have a tendency 
don't walk on the grass. You know, and you see somebody, you know, <laughs> what is with that? You know, something has to die in order for us to be free. The power of the sinful nature must die. It says, verse six, but now by dying to what, what once was once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we can serve in a new way, the way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. By releasing us from the demands of the law, sin loses its strength. All of a sudden, we're not telling people, don't do this, do this, don't do that, do this. And you know what's so interesting in the old, in the old holiness movement, and some of you have that background. Remember the old preaching was, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Remember how legalistic it used to be? Anybody remember those days? And you know what that, all that did? It made people do those things and not do those things. It wasn't really helping people become free. That's not the idea. They needed to come back to this chapter and really understand it. Let me move on to the second element. And that is how the law exposes sin for what it is. How many have discovered that sin is pretty sneaky? Anybody figure that out? It says, the nature of sin is deception. We, our hearts get hard and it's the deceitfulness of sin. It, 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 it actually, we think we're okay and we're not. <clears throat> And I'm not talking about in someone else's life, but in our own life. I find that, you know, as, as we're walking with God, you know, he just starts showing us stuff. Anybody have discovered this, all of a sudden you go, oh. You know, it's amazing to me how much God loves us, but he doesn't actually correct us the day we become a Christian. You got 500 things you need to, re, to, to be changed in your life to be like Jesus. Could you imagine getting saved and God goes, here's the list, start working on it. <laughs> wow, I'm overwhelmed. I mean, how could you even love me? And you know, we're actually far worse than we really think we are. That's the scary part, you know? It really is kind of scary. We're kind of blind to sin. And then we, then we say words like, well, everybody else is doing it, right? We have all these lines of how we can justify our behavior or I have no intention of hurting anybody else or I'm not, the only person I'm hurting is myself. How many of that's not even true? I mean, every time we do something wrong, we're, hurting, we're, we're offending God we're messing with ourselves and we're hurting other people every single time. Or, you know, my motives were pure. Or, I didn't do anything wrong. Or, here's the one I love. Nobody's perfect. Or, here's another one. I'm just human. Well, yeah, I know we're human. And, and you know, but we use these lines. Or, or somebody confronts us and we'll just say, oh, I had no idea. Just had no idea. Now, Paul is trying to show us how subtle sin is within our own lives how sin conceals itself in our hearts and we're blind to its presence in our life. And then God uses what I call his diagnostic tool, the law. You know, it's like if you're a mechanic, you know, nowadays all these fancy cars, in the old days you just listened to a noise and kind of figured it out. But now they, they roll the computer up and they do what? A diagnostic, you know, right? And it kind of prints out everything that's wrong with your car. And the word of God is like that. It's like a diagnostic tool. The law comes up and it prints out areas in our lives that need a little work on. That's what it does. That's the, the law's role. It's a revealer of our true condition. And you go, well, listen, pastor, I just want to be ignorant. <clears throat> I don't want to know how bad I really am. But the only problem with being ignorant is you're still in bondage. How many know you're not going to change unless you know what the problem is? You know, that's why we go, you know, we go to a doctor and you go, there's something wrong. I just don't feel good. My body's just not working the way it once worked. I just got no life in me. I've got, you know, we, we, can, we talk about how we feel, right? 
and we go to the doctor and they, then they try to figure out what's wrong with us. You know, like they're trying to give us a diagnostic about how we could improve or what the problem is. And if we don't identify what the problem is, eventually it takes us out. And we know that that's serious. It's the same thing in the spiritual life. You know, we can be ignorant, but that's not going to help us. So we go back to the law and the law starts revealing, okay, this is what needs to happen. Then Paul says, he shows us here the role of the law and how sin uses that diagnostic tool to actually bring us into sin bondage. Look what he says, verse seven. What shall I say then? Is the law sin? No, certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. From apart from the law, sin is dead. But once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. Wow, that's strong stuff. So what, what is he basically saying? He's saying, once, the, once I found out what was wrong, then all of a sudden, I was now bound by this thing. It, it, you know, here's what the problem is. It gives me a diagnosis of what's wrong with me, but it doesn't have the power to change me. You see, it's identifying what the issue is, but it's not the solution. And so people are frustrated. How many know it's really frustrating to have a diagnosis, but there's no cure? Isn't that frustrating? There's nothing we can do for you. I'm sorry, you're going to have to be like this the rest of your life. Really? That's a drag, you know, got this problem. But you know, some of us say, well, you know, why did we even have the law? Well, let me point out something to you. People were dying between Adam and Moses. So they were still sinning. They just didn't know why they were dying. Do you understand what I'm saying? After Moses, everybody understands why they're dying because now they have identified their problem, but it didn't bring life. And you know, even though they tried to keep the law, how many know we're just not good enough to keep all the law? We just kept messing up. So we were all under that problem. As a matter of fact, James says this, but everyone is tempted when by his own evil desires dragged away and he's enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown gives birth to death. Now there's two examples that many uh, writers see in this passage in chapter seven. First of all, there's kind of two examples. There's the Garden of Eden example. You know, everything was going good until God says, don't mess with that tree. What's the first thing they did? Go mess with the tree, right? Or, or the nation of Israel. You know, God gave them the law. And they were deceived into thinking that they could somehow attain life through the law. And Douglas Moo, as a commentator, writes this. But the attempts of Israel to find life through the law brought death. Excuse me. Not because obeying the law in itself is sinful or worthy of death, but because the law could not be fulfilled until Jesus got here. He's the only one that did it. He was the only one that could do it. So the problem is not with the law. Sin utilized the law to tempt mankind in violating God's word and will and thereby bringing into it the consequences of that action. So why have a law? What good is it? Well, I've said it's a diagnostic tool. Listen to what he says in verse 12. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, there's the diagnostic tool, it produced death in me through the commandment. Sin might become utterly sinful. <clears throat> so Paul, what he's saying is the value of the law is the awareness of sin. And you can't deal with something unless you know what the problem is. And the law says, no, we're all sinners. 
Actually, the law brings us to the whole idea of all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what it's going to bring you to. But now we're getting down to the solution. Thank God. But it's, it's a struggle that leads to overcoming sin. You go, well, how do I get beyond this sin in my life, Pastor? How can I get dominion over it? How can I master this area that's mastered my life? Well, that's the question we raised at the beginning of the message. Is this section the experience of a non-Christian or, an, or the Christian? And the answer is, it's both. It's how I feel when I first come up to the coming to Christ. I start realizing I'm wrong. You have to recognize a need before you're going to get the solution. And then number two, it's also the issue that we have as Christians. After we become a Christian, because we're going, I'm a new Christian, I know God's forgiven me, but why am I still defeated? Why am I still struggling with these things in my life? And we've asked ourselves that question. And let me just start reading chapter 7. So take a look in your Bibles. Verse 14 It's very important. I'm going to read a verse. I'm going to make a comment. I'm going to read a verse. I'm going to make a comment. Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. We've already made the argument that this is the battle. We all recognize I got a problem and I'm not winning. Okay? I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Anybody ever had that problem going, I really don't want to do this, but I find myself doing this over and over again. Come on now. Honestly, I know it's wrong, but I keep doing it. I want to get, I want to get past that. Right? I want to... Okay, this is a description of a person doing the exact opposite of what they really want to do. Something is interfering that's greater than themselves. How many recognize that? You know what that is? Sin. And sin is more powerful than you and me. That's the problem. That's why we're not doing what we want to do. That's why we're, not, we're doing what we don't want to do. And we know it's wrong. Because it's hurting us, it's hurting others. We know it's a problem. And we're recognizing sin is a great power. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. I'm in agreement. I'm saying I recognize this as a problem. I know that law is right. I know that this is not healthy. I can see the negative things that are happening in my life and the people around me. And then he says this. So what's causing me to do it? it and then he says, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. Now, it's what's Paul saying? Are you not taking responsibility? No, he's using a form of speech to emphasize what the heart of the problem is. Paul never removes our responsibility for our behavior. But then he says, this is the problem. He identifies it. He says, it is no longer myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. He's saying, there's a power in me greater than myself, and it's sin. Now, do you know what? So often we, we have this really amazing problem in our culture, you know? People are doing bad things. We got school shootings, right? Remember about 18 years ago, there was a school shooting in Alberta, Tabor. Young man was killed. You know what the mom said? This is the mom of the, of the actual killer, the one that did the shooting. She said this, he's not a vicious or nasty boy. That's the mom's viewpoint, okay? And then the boy says to his mom back, he said, mom, it wasn't me who did it. It felt like somebody else. Okay, so what is he saying? I wasn't really myself. He's actually agreeing with Romans 7. He's saying it's actually the power of sin within me. You know, I would even say Satan has come along and, and exasperated that sin within him. See what I'm saying? It's evil. 
See, we, we, we're going, where does evil come from? I'm so tired of people saying, you know, if there's a good God, why does he allow evil? I'm going to tell you why there's evil, because there's human beings. And we have we got to stop making excuses and recognize that evil is not out there. Evil is in here. And it's not somebody else, but it's me. And until I understand that, I don't get it. You know, sometimes... People that with very simple theology really get it. You know, the African Negro, you know, they used to sing a spiritual call. It's not my brother nor my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. In other words, don't blame anybody else. I've got the problem. It's called sin. You know, some of you can relate to this. Then he goes on to say it there in verse 18. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. Okay? So, What he's doing is identifying the problem. He's not saying that everybody's all bad. He's just saying that we all have a sinful nature. That's bad, okay? And I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. That's the addictive nature of sin. How many know that once you keep doing it, you actually develop tracks in your mind and it just keeps going over and over again. And you know those little recordings in your head, you know, I just keep circulating the same ideas. And how do you change that? You got to break it. And we'll talk about how in a moment. Then he says, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in my members, that is in my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. How many kind of relate to this? You know, I was thinking years ago, you know, there was a kind of a sitcom, you know, Steve Urkel, you know. Remember this guy? Some of you are laughing. You probably saw the sitcom, little African-American kid. He was a nerd, and he kept going over. And there was his family. He was, had a crush on the girl next door. And his, his dad was the police officer. And he just tormented that, that family. It was so funny. And then, you know, and then, and then he, he was he was this real nuisance. He didn't even know he was doing wrong. And then he would make his famous statement, did I do that? <laughs> you know? That was the classic punchline every single episode, right? Did I do that? You know, and that's kind of we walk around. We're like spiritual Steve Urkel's, you know, did I do that? You know, like, where did that come from? You know, you know, just kind of pops out of us once in a while. That's just the sin nature. You know, we got to deal with this thing, you know. So once we get to that stage where we recognize there's a problem inside of us, we kind of get where Paul says, this is the last verse. I love this because it's a lead into chapter 8, which is one of the most glorious chapters in the entire Bible. When he says this, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Or who's going to rescue me from myself? And you know, so many people are so discouraged with themselves. There's so much self-loathing inside of people. There's so much self-hatred inside of people. Young people don't know what to do with it anymore. No one's giving them the answer. And so a lot of them are just committing suicide. But the answer is Jesus Christ, who can change the sin nature within us. That's the good news, folks. And that's where Paul brings us to. He says, thanks be unto God. Who can rescue me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now here's the good news. How many know that some of you in this room, you say, I'm a Christian. I gave my life to Jesus Christ. He set me free from the penalty of sin. But I'm here to declare to you, you don't have to try more to be set free from the power of sin. See, a lot of times, Paul isn't telling us, you know, to try to help ourselves by doing more. 
good things, more spiritual things. Oh, if I only prayed more, if I only fasted more, you know, I only attended church more times a week, if I only gave more. You know, it's not us trying to be better, it's us trusting in the grace of God. Just the same way we gave our lives to Jesus Christ and he set us free from our sin, Jesus wants to set you and I free from the power of sin in our lives. It's by his grace. And we say, Lord, I'm struggling with this habit. I have a problem with lying. You know, I'm trying to make myself better than I am, or I'm, I'm afraid to tell the truth, and so I struggle with lying. Lord, I've tried to stop, but I just find myself, the more I stop, the more I do it. I'm a, you know, I just keep doing it. I don't want to. Paul says, you know what you need to do? Speak the truth. Say, Lord, I need help. Help me to be a truth speaker. Because I know that truth will set me free. I know that I'm driven by fear and not faith. And that's why I'm behaving in the wrong way. You know, why am I promiscuous in my sexuality? Because I want to be loved. Isn't that why? Come on, let's be realistic. I'm searching for love in the wrong place. And here's what you need to know. There's only one person that's going to fill the brokenness and the emptiness in your soul. It's not another person. It's Jesus. And when you surrender to him... And you've got to get that area in your life under control and walk in purity. And then God can trust you with another person because all we keep doing is hurting each other. Want me to keep going? I go down every single list. You know, I could talk about, you know, people who are prone to, you know, sometimes we steal. When I think of stealing, you always think about money. But what about stealing another person's reputation or taking credit for somebody else, what they did? Isn't that stealing? Or what about stealing from God? When I take credit for something God's doing. Shouldn't I be giving honor and credit and glory to God? Shouldn't I be telling people, and they say, hey, man, what a great job. And you, you know, sometimes we, we watch some of these athletes, and we think, what are these guys kidding me? You know, they're talking about Jesus. Let me tell you something. They're doing the right thing. They're doing exactly the right thing. They're saying, listen, God gave me this ability. God gave me this gift. God gave me the strength. He kept me free from injury. He allowed me to do better than I normally do. God anointed me today so that we could win this game. I'm giving credit to my Lord and Savior. You know, a lot of people get really upset. You know, like the diehard sports guys that really don't want things of God mentioned, they're really ticked and cheesed off by all of that. But I think it's great because these guys are giving credit to whom credit really is due. We need to understand that. We need to understand that in our lives. And so we're going to close the service today. And I really believe that, you know, we, we can struggle with issues in our life, but Jesus wants to set us free today. He really does. He wants us to live in spiritual victory. And I want to have a stand as we close the service right now. Just take a minute more, a minute too longer. I'm going to pray. And how many here, just with every head bowed, and just close your eyes and just around you, the Spirit of God is speaking to you today and He's challenging you right now. And you know that there's areas in your life that you have struggled with. You've got to temper you're full of anger. You've got unforgiveness in your life. You've been gossiping. I can just go down. We could list sin till the cows come home. You know, you know, a lot of times we can just say, you know, I really struggle, Pastor. I, you know what I tend to do when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm discouraged and down? I just start eating too much. I overeat. It's a comfort thing with me. But I know it's wrong and it's affecting me in a negative way. Boy, Pastor, you're really speaking to things today. Yes, because you know what? We want to be free. We want to deal with these things in the right way. You know, we don't want to just try to try harder or, you know, or do something to compensate in our own human energy and strength. 
You know, I, I was just thinking, you know, how many people struggle with, you know, lustful thoughts? You say, how do you break that, Pastor? Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He says, when you see a young woman, he says, consider her your sister, your younger sister with all purity. Think about that for a minute. You know, if you're a father here today and you have a beautiful daughter, would you like someone to despoil and, and discredit your daughter? Not one guy here as a father would want that to happen. Well, then why in your mind are you doing that to someone else's daughter? You see, we need to take this stuff seriously and say, God, I have sinned against you. The one who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to be free. I want to be free. This morning, I want to receive your grace to deliver me from the power of sin. I want to receive that grace that will set me free. And I want to exercise that grace every time temptation comes my way. I want you, the Holy Spirit, to bring the law to bear on my soul and point out that needs to change. Then you need to pray right after God. I need you to forgive me, but I need more than that. I need the grace and the power to overcome it. See the difference? We want to break habits. We want to live in victory. And you know what happens when you start living in victory? You're now free from sin. And you're now free to serve with power and effectiveness. God's speaking to hearts this morning. You're saying, I want to be free. Just raise your hand right now. All over this auditorium, people are raising their hands. I want to be free. I want to be free. Lord, you see our hearts cry. You didn't just set us free to deliver us from the penalty of sin. You set us free to deliver us from the very power of sin. And I pray today that freedom will come into our lives. There's so many different manifestations of sin that we're struggling with, but I believe that you're the deliverer. You're the one that's going to redeem us. It's not trying harder. It's trusting in you for the power to be free. Now I pray, Father, forgive us. I pray today to cleanse us. I pray today to put hope within us. I pray today to have strategies to address the issues of fear and unbelief and doubt and all the things that riddle our lives. I pray that we're going to walk in a new authority and in a new freedom. And I thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.